But chronic anxiety sells us in the moment doom and destruction. And that's why a lot of people burn out is because they've never addressed their false needs, their assumptions about themselves. They've never wrangled their inner critic with the gospel. So they let their inner critic have more way with them than they let God. I'm interested in helping people notice anxiety so they can encounter God and relax into God's presence more than they're doing now. Welcome to It's Not About the Money, a podcast in search of grounded fundraising. I'm Heather, and together with my co-host, Andy, we look beyond the quick tips and formulas. Join us as we explore the nuance and complexity of ministry fundraising. If you want to thrive in partner development, not just survive it, this is the place for you. All right, welcome back to It's Not About the Money. Many who are raising personal support are doing so for full-time ministry work and often within the context of a team. Developing the ability to recognize anxiety in self and others, and to take steps to move through that anxiety, is a critical element of healthy missionaries, healthy teams, and healthy ministry. We would love to become more self-aware and outline a paradigm for managing anxiety. And today we have a guest with us that is going to help us do that. Andy, tell us more about our guest. Yeah, absolutely. We Guys, we are thrilled to welcome... Uh, Pastor Steve Cuss to the show today. I first stumbled upon him when I was directed to Right Now Media, and I saw his video series about managing anxiety. Mm. And it was uh, it was fascinating, very new stuff for me. So our guest grew up in Perth, Western Australia, and so you'll pick that up very quickly as he begins to talk. But has lived uh, for quite a while here in America and uh, resides in Colorado mm. uh, right now. Got his start professionally when he was newly married as a hospice and trauma chaplain, which sounds to me very stressful. Um, So (laughs) we're talking to him about anxiety today. And then while he was kind of swimming in this anxiety-rich environment, he was introduced to something called family systems theory. Hmm. So that undergirds a lot of his approach. And so listeners, if you hear some unfamiliar or new syntax, some vocabulary, that may be the context uh, that it's coming from. Uh, Steve has also written a book called uh, Managing Leadership Anxiety back in 2019 on my, my second listen through and have really been enjoying it. Steve also has a background in clinical pastoral education, and he's a pastor now at Discovery Church in Broomfield, Colorado. I think I've hit the high points there. <laughs> yep, that's great. First question for me is, is how does the first job for you right out of the canon <laughs> uh, in this environment, how does that mold your understanding of anxiety? It's a big man, question. What a great question. Yeah. Man, it, it molds it so much because I think it's the context of that job. Like, I mean, if we want to be playful about something that's really serious, if you think about the job of a chaplain, no one's sitting around their hospital room bored and thinking to themselves, hmm you know what would make this a more fun day? Let's get the chaplain in here. Like mm-hmm. they're only ever calling you in the absolute worst moments of their life. And I think there's this, there's like the catalyst or the boot camp of death, trauma, cancer mm. that just trips away all pretense. And you, you quickly run into yourself. That's what I experienced is, is I, I thought that I was going to serve people in need, but what 
it really was, was discovering all that I'm carrying into the room that I have to manage in order to be able to serve people in need. So there is something unique uh, and powerful about those huge forces of trauma that Mm. I think help you locate your anxiety for sure. Hmm. And we are a podcast focused on individual ministry fundraising. So I think I have to ask right off the bat, do you do you have any experience in the fundraising world, either personally or as a church leader? Oh, oh my goodness. We were a portable, <laughs> tiny church when I came. And, you know, over our, I, I was the lead pastor for 16 years at our church. I'm still there, but we have a new lead pastor now that I'm doing this work full-time, the work I'm doing with you guys here. Mm-hmm. So I've led four capital campaigns to get us from, you know, being portable in an elementary cafeteria to our own building on 16 acres of land. And Mm. I mean, honestly, guys, two of those campaigns or even three of them were brutal Mm. because when you're young, you're full of ambition and faith and excitement. And then like, well, (laughs) one of our campaigns was through the 2000 and 2008 and 9 housing crisis. Yes. Mm. And we went from dreaming about building to making sure we could keep our land, for example. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, lots of anxiety around fundraising and lots of extra energy, right? When you, Particularly if you're doing a capital-focused fundraising endeavor, boy, it's just, it can be really acting mm-hmm. on your energy and emotional health. Mm-hmm. I, I can imagine. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I just think it's so important to address this idea of anxiety and fundraising because so many people are just terrified. Mm-hmm. They may have, they may sense a call, they may sense a desire to do something uh, missionally, commissionally, uh, but just can't bring themselves to cross that threshold into fundraising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always, I always actually enjoyed asking people for money. I know that's funny, <laughs> but perfect. Um, I love being financially generous. I, I yeah. was not highly paid as a pastor. I was paid a normal pastor's salary. Don't get me wrong. I was very content with my pay, but relative to my income, I love being generous. And I think that did mm-hmm. allow me to invite other people into generosity because I've seen the difference it makes. I mean, in our church, we were the first church in our city to build a building and move into it in 26 years. Wow. And while we were raising money for our church in the United States, we were sending money to Paraguay and Kenya for people to build churches and do ministry there. It was incredible. It was incredible that we got to be part of it. And I drive by that building several times a week, you know, whether I'm going to the office or just driving by and just to look at it and say, man, God, God used me to be a small part of that is Mm. I think an incredible privilege. Mm. Mm. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you, you highlighted just the opportunity to be part of that is such a privilege. And really we think that fundraising is a partnership. It is inviting people into what God is up to for their joy and for their good. Um, mm-hmm. But like Andy said, anxiety can really put a stop to people moving forward and extending the invitation, maybe in overthinking, should they even be doing this? So mm-hmm. we really think it's important to to try to speak to how people can understand and identify anxiety in themselves and then how to move through that. And Navigate. so we're, yeah. yeah, we're so excited to have your your voice as we discuss that. Yeah. So the the subtitle of your book is Managing anxiety, yours and others. So, can you talk to us about this concept? Maybe this is new to some of our listeners. Like, how do you manage someone else's anxiety? 
Right. What you're trying to do is notice the spread of anxiety between people. So you're not trying to reach into another person and like manage it, but Mm. you are trying to lead and exist in such a way that your connected presence can be as infectious Mm. as the anxiety is. Like if you've ever been, even just if you think of an average team meeting, whether you're talking about an organizational team like a staff or you could even talk about a a sporting team, just Mm. really any group of people that are doing work together. Mm -hmm. What you can train people to do is notice how anxiety is spreading between those people. Mm. Who is always using the most words? Who gets the final say? Who never speaks up unless they're called upon? Uh, These are just the three simple or even a fourth question. Who has their own secret meeting after the meeting? You Mm. know, they don't speak up in the meeting, but they have a private Mm. meeting in the hallway. Yeah. Yeah. These are just simple examples of how anxiety spreads. So if you can notice that going on, what tends to happen is we tend to react to this kind of situation, but we don't know how to respond to it. So it's really about setting cultural values of how we treat each other, how we talk to each other, Mm. so that we can all kind of relax into connection with each other rather than being caught up in reactivity, which is what typically happens without a healthy leader or, or somebody healthy in the room that's helping people manage it. Yeah, good. Mm-hmm. Love it. You talk about in your book how uh, sometimes anxiety can be an early detection system for misplaced dependence. Uh, wondering if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of different anxieties, uh, even clinically, you know, there's well over a dozen, but there's one particular kind of anxiety. It's what's clinically called chronic anxiety. And it's fascinating because actually there are several anxieties that are based on something real. Like grief mm. is a form of anxiety and it's based on a real loss. Yes. Trauma is a form of anxiety and it's based on a real horrific event in your past. Acute anxiety, like if you lose a child in a playground or if you have to slam on the brakes when you're driving in a car to swerve and avoid an accident, mm-hmm. that's based on something real. But chronic anxiety is always based on something false. Mm-hmm. It's always based on an assumption like an assumption I have about myself or assumption I'm holding about you or an assumption you're holding about me. And this is how you can see it's contagious. Chronic anxiety is the only kind of anxiety that's contagious. Mm. And anytime we are living out of assumption, we're living into something false. But God is true. God is real. God is concretely true. And we relate to God in concrete reality or what I, you know, what Jesus says in truth. You can know truth and truth can set you free. Yes. So I think if you can learn to notice that you're chronically anxious, it can be a warning system that you have stopped depending on God for your well-being. One of the easiest types of people to notice this in would be a perfectionist. If somebody's a perfectionist, Mm. they have assumptions about themselves and the world and the way things must be for them to be okay. So Mm. if you even just picture encouraging a perfectionist to intentionally send an email with three spelling errors in it. (laughs) They they would recoil in horror at that. Mm. In fact, when I do my workshops, I can see people, some people recoil in horror like I'm torturing them and when I tell them to do that. And some people look at me like I'm highly suspicious. That's because when I tell a perfectionist, hey, make a mistake on purpose, send an email to somebody that really matters and, and put a mistake in it. (laughs) <laughs> what their chronic anxiety is doing is is selling them the assumption that the world's about to fall apart if they do that. Mm. 
when in reality, sending one email with a few mistakes, is not much is really going to happen. Even if that person calls you and points out the mistakes, the yeah. sun is still going to shine the next day. You're not going to lose your reputation. Mm. But chronic anxiety sells us in the moment, doom and destruction. Mm. And that's why a lot of people burn out is because they've never addressed their false needs Mm. their assumptions about themselves. They've never wrangled their inner critic with the gospel. So they let their inner critic have more way with them than they let God. Now, I don't say that by, I don't mean to shame anybody by saying that. I just think that's the way we are. I'm interested in helping people notice anxiety so they can encounter God and relax into God's presence more than they're doing now. Mm. Mm. I really love the way you articulated that. I really like the word wrangle, you know, wrangling the inner <laughs> critic with the gospel, because I think what that implies is you're not just, you know, taking a false idea and then just kind of, you know, whitewashing over it with a true idea. You you have to wrestle with it. You have to get under it and figure out what, why am I feeling this way? Mm. And then and apply the gospel maybe over and over and over, as opposed to just kind of mm. once and done, mm. you know, dispelling that anxiety. It, it implies kind of a bringing into submission, headlocking yeah. kind of a picture for me. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. It, it, it's definitely, this work is definitely more about intentionality and courage mm. than it is skill. That's for sure. Mm. You also mentioned in the book that your anxiety is often triggered when we need something that we don't actually need. You just mentioned some false needs. How can we possibly apply this to raising funds for the first time? What are some false needs that might be generated if we're in a fundraising environment? Really interesting question because some areas of fundraising, I'm not sure are chronic anxiety. Like I, I know in my case, when our church was young and we were struggling, we were portable, we'd been portable a long time. And, you know, I'm in the Denver metro area. It's a tough place. The church plans to thrive and establish. Hmm. A lot of churches around us had closed. What I was doing is I was like placing too much pressure on my sermons, for example. I had a couple of friends that worked on my church staff. I, it's almost like I started to believe that my sermon performance affected them being able to be paid hmm. based on some convoluted belief about attendance and success and hmm. sermons attracting people. Like it got quite complicated. So I do think money, you know, is such a source of security for people. Um, I think most people who are fundraising themselves are probably underpaid. Uh, <laughs> I know for me, for example, I definitely came from a poverty mindset. Mm, and so I mm. do think there's a lot wrapped up in there. Uh, what I'm interested in doing with people is exploring their assumptions that they attach to things. So mm. It's hard to answer specifically because what I would typically do is have someone for an hour or so or a peer group, and we would dig into the meaning that they are attaching to fundraising and money would help them mm. name the source of belief or what it means about them if they don't hit their fundraising targets, things like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's helpful. Okay, so you also use in the book the term giants on our shoulders to describe messages from our past that we bring into a stressful moment. So maybe that's connected to kind of these assumptions that people are making that you just referenced. How would you explain this to someone anxious about fundraising? And is this similar to the story we tell ourselves infecting our reality? Hmm. It's a really great question. Technically, the giants on your shoulders 
are a subset of the story you tell yourself. It's probably helpful to think of the story you tell yourself as this rather large, complex, twisted set of spider webs. You know, it comes from your family of origin and your experiences. But specifically speaking, you know, the giants on your shoulders can go several ways. It could be, like, let's say that you're a pastor fundraising, and it could be that your father was a pastor and your grandfather, and then you find yourself making assumptions about your capacity based on their capacity. Mm. The giants on your shoulders are financial experts or people of high means in your organization. And you are placing meaning on your competence based on what you know about their competence. Mm. I know in my case, I had to raise money as a brand new young lead pastor while learning about the experience extremely intricate and challenging political process of getting a building approved in our city. We happen to have, for a variety of reasons, a very complex land zoning structure. Mm. And so these are things, you know, who knew when I went into seminary that learning to understand local city politics, land Mm -hmm. zoning, uh, the power of a well-organized neighborhood that wants to keep open space, all these things, Mm. who knew that that would be part of it? And so what would happen is we would run, we would raise funds naively, not realizing the battle ahead. Mm. Which means the next time we raised funds, those giants were on my shoulders saying, "Hey, you should, I told you so. You should have known better or done better." That, that would be a tangible way it can happen. But you know, a lot of people who are fundraising, they just have to get to the bottom of what do they believe in their mission and what is keeping them from having. Uh, an inspiring or an inviting conversation with someone or a group of people about, about what they do. Yeah. I, I just think about some people as they're in like a follow-up process, let's say they've had a, a call with somebody, they've invited somebody to partnership. And then that person maybe says, yes, I'd like to, but then never commits or uh, they call them back and they ghost them. I, I wonder if there's any kind of like the, the story that we tell ourselves that, that some untruth that can kind of creep in, infect, paralyze, and start telling them some some false truths. Some- yeah. I definitely found, in my case, it was really important to disconnect personal friendship or personal relationship from the financial ask. Mm. Uh, I'll never forget, we did a fundraiser, and I had to put together a fundraising task force, and you know, it was everything from event planning to mail out, mailing out letters. It was a whole deal several months process. And uh, I asked a couple in the church that I really enjoy. These are wonderful people. And I emailed them and said, would you consider being on this task force? Here are the jobs that we're looking for. And what happened is the husband and wife replied to each other without me in an internal dialogue between them about (laughs) what they thought about the request. But then when it was time to give me a reply, one of them just forwarded me the whole thread. Oh, geez. <laughs> so I got to read through them kind of expressing that, man, it just feels like Steve asks a lot. Like, mm. And so finally, the last line was, I said no last time, it's your turn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that, you know, that hurt. Uh, that hurt to get that. And of course, the person that sent it didn't mean for me to see the internal conversation. But it was also very helpful for me to realize, look, these are really good people. And they're doing, mm. and maybe I am stretching people too thin. And it was important for me to do my own work about my own anxiety because without doing my work, I would be tiptoeing around them, Mm. which would make everything worse for them and me rather Mm. than managing my anxiety and going to them and apologizing and laughing, you know, like saying, Mm. I am so sorry. 
that you feel overtaxed by me. I never want that to be your primary experience with me. Mm. And hey, I don't know if you knew this, but the husband sent me the whole thing. Like I just thought, <laughs> let's get it out in the open right. because I want us to be well with each other. So I do think sometimes when we're fundraising, we attach personal well-being, personal relationships. Because I've been in those situations, guys, where people have made promises they don't keep. Yeah. And oftentimes what they do, I've had three or four of these circumstances. People will tell me something because they want me to feel financial relief. Mm. So in the moment, they'll say, we're going to mm. sell a car and donate it. Oh, fantastic. That'd be amazing. But then they go home and talk to a spouse or something and they're not going to sell a car and donate it. Yeah. Well, now they feel shame and they're avoiding me. Right. I, I generally give people mulligans on that kind of thing because I think our relationship is much more important than mm. them giving that piece of money, you know, because yeah. I've had mm-hmm. that same experience of being ghosted. That's an awful situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What you mentioned too, like in the absence of information, we can connect the dots in the most pathological way possible. So that speaks to me of if I don't know why you're not talking to me or if I don't know why you haven't followed through, I can start to assume dramatic things. Yeah, like they don't like you or they're mad at you or... Yeah. Yeah. What did I do? They were just trying to uh, appease me. Yeah. Yeah. And did you have a question with that, I I think the question is, how do we see some examples of that? Like when we're missing information, we kind of fill in the blanks. How can we avoid this kind of poison of assumption? Oh, man. It, it's so hard to avoid assumption, but it really helps to recognize it. Like you, Andy, in that story, you did a really good job of noticing your assumption. Now that you've noticed it and you've named it, now you have this power to decide what am I going to do about it? Am I going to sift this assumption through the gospel and see if it's true? Maybe you'll decide to talk to those people. Maybe you won't, but we get anxious when we let assumptions grow in our heads. So, one of the tools we teach are the spaces of anxiety. We teach people how to notice anxiety in specific spaces. And one of the most powerful spaces is what we call the third space, which is the space inside the other person. Hmm. We train people in our workshops to notice when your brain is in someone else's brain. Hmm. You're wondering what they think, what they think of you. You're making meaning out of what you don't know. And it can be so liberating to learn to notice when you are in someone else's brain and then you can get out of their brain. Hmm. So then beyond that point, I mean, I made that sound easier than it is, <laughs> but beyond that point, it's, that's when you get to decide through prayer or counsel, am I going to talk to this person about it or am I the primary problem? Like, like hmm. you don't want to be the kind of person that's always needing assurance with somebody. Mm, yeah. Right. That's usually a sign that you need to do more third space work. You're living too much in other people's brain. Because the fact is, most of us don't think about each other that much. <laughs> most of us yeah. think about ourselves the most. Right. And so just learning to relax and trust that this is God's person can, can really, really help tremendously. So we know that, it, you know, that dealing with anxiety and with triggers takes time. There's no magic pill or no formula. But do you have any immediate suggestions for someone that might be struggling with anxiety or fundraising? You know, I guess one that comes to mind is maybe just sit down and kind of write out your thoughts, because maybe in those thoughts we can uncover some assumptions. Hmm. Um, but I'm just, I'm just curious what some of your kind of first line steps would be in helping somebody that seems caught up in anxiety. Maybe paralyzed by, yeah, yeah. to an action. Yeah. 
a really great question. And I think it's such an important question because, I, and I think your suggestion of writing down the thoughts is a wonderful start. The, the general rule we use is to externalize, mm-hmm. meaning don't let it rattle around in your head. And so writing mm-hmm. it out is a great tool. And then the more advanced work is, can do you have a group of peers that you trust, just two to five people? Mm. That might, and you could simply meet with them and say, "Would I, I need to tell you what I'm anxious about? Would you please listen to my assumptions?" Because mm-hmm. actually, most of us are pretty good at hearing assumptions in another person and not very good at seeing it in ourselves. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So maybe the more advanced advanced work would be to get a group and and vulnerably say, "I'm anxious about fundraising. I don't know why. I'm just going to start talking about it. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm worried about." And then the peer group, we, we've done this still a number of times. The peer group's actually writing out the assumptions and then at the end is uh, giving them back to you. Like, is this true, this idea that hmm. people are getting worn out by fundraising? Because one of the, you know, it's kind of related to the giants on your shoulders, but it's also like a same species syndrome. Like sometimes if you've got an organization of 100 people and four have expressed that they're tired of fundraising, you attribute that weariness to the whole organization you mm-hmm. know it's, oh man this whole organization no it's really four people and they have every right to be tired of it but that doesn't mean everyone's tired of it so that's an, there's an assumption and that's the um, that's so the same species to, syndrome right yeah that's yeah. right yeah yeah four people are tired everyone everyone in my organization is tired the four people are talking to everyone else mm-hmm. you know your opinion is infecting everyone all of those are assumptions I, i've certainly found great encouragement and getting clear on the vision you know is what we are doing does it really matter Hmm. i know 17 years ago i committed to our congregation obviously my fundraising context is a local church i I told them i said we will only ask you to give for things that really really matter Hmm. and i feel like we kept that promise yeah and then we always tried to often i would up and say listen if you're already giving if you're already generously giving, I'm not asking you to do another thing. Yeah. What I'm talking to is those of you who maybe have not, you've not joined the rest of us. So I'll often say something like that, like actually acknowledge there are people in the room that are totally doing what we're asking and mm-hmm. we want to thank you. We're not putting our hand out for more. That's helpful. Some of those moves were helpful. You talk about how someone can be self-aware, but still unhealthy I wonder what that might look like and how that might impact someone's ability to fundraise. Yeah. The the most common unhealthy self-aware person is the person that says some form of, well, this is just the way I am and you have to deal with it. Hmm. They're aware, but they don't care. And I'm always thinking, you know, honestly, man, we wish you'd deal with it. Because <laughs> if you would deal yeah. with it, that means we wouldn't have to deal with it anymore. <laughs> right. right. That's very common in a lot of organizations, especially with like a type A driven leader. Mm. It's not uncommon that that leader is generating the anxiety and everyone else is carrying it. Mm. And that that leader is saying, well, everyone just has to deal because this is the way it has to be. And I'm like, no, it's not good enough. You can actually pursue health Mm. and you can help your team be well by working on yourself. Like you are the one causing most of the turnover in this organization, for example. So mm-hmm. that would be your classic self-aware, don't care kind of person. Yeah. So it could be in, in fundraising, oh, I'm just shy. I'm introverted. I'm not good at this. Is that yeah, reasonable? Yeah, I think that's or? actually a really, 
that's a really interesting example is the opposite extreme, not that bold personality, but that mm-hmm. person that dim- diminishes themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that would be another example. It's like, well, yeah, but the vision's here and the job has to be done and it's your role, you know, so mm-hmm. you can manage that and learn to get good at it. Yeah. Yeah. So earlier you mentioned that chronic anxiety is contagious and that it is the only kind of anxiety that's contagious. I'm curious how, you know, going into a partnership meeting, if you're feeling some anxiety as the person who is raising financial support, what might that look like? Would that be an instance where that could be contagious or how might that influence that conversation? Yes, for sure. If you are the one fundraising and you're meeting with a donor and you have not managed your anxiety, it's highly likely that the donor will catch it. The anxiety can get really sophisticated because the donor can start cheering the leader on if that anxious fundraiser is insecure or some Mm. people I've seen them where they're very apologetic. They don't know how just to sit there calmly and say, here's what we're doing, here's what we need, and I would it would mean so much if you'd consider helping us with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you help us? You know, instead they're, oh, hey, I know that they're using all these disclaimers and apologies. That will absolutely lower connection and increase anxiety in, in the donor. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and then the donor is no longer free to be just responding to the spirit because they're probably now caught up in like... The dynamics. Yeah, the yeah. dynamic at play. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and sometimes that dynamic is the donor leaves irritated, which is another, that's another mm-hmm. form of anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's not always that they feel sorry. They're like, look, get it together. You know, I'll, I'll invest my money in a, a different place. So irritability and frustration and what we call cutoff would be another way that that donor caught the anxiety. So talk to us about how internal anxiety could actually block us from maybe trusting God. Hmm. If chronic anxiety happens because you have a false need, then what you're doing theologically in that moment is you're depending on yourself, not on God, for your well-being or for what the Bible calls shalom. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, in, in the New Testament language or in the Book of Romans, Paul uses a lot of righteousness language. I think in the 21st century, we've stripped that word down to meaning justification by faith through Jesus' death on the cross. Now, mm. I I believe with every fiber of my being that Jesus died to justify me mm-hmm. and make me well with God. But actually, in Scripture, righteousness and shalom is such a broader invitation mm. than simply asking God to forgive my sins and give me the gift of eternal life. It's really mm. more about a daily reality. Mm. So what's happening is is when I am chronically anxious, when I need to get it perfectly right, or, you know, I won't pick on perfectionists. In my case, one of my top needs is a people-pleasing. Mm-hmm. If I feel like someone's disappointed in me, I get chronically anxious. Mm-hmm. Because in that moment, I'm believing that I must have your approval for me to be well, or in New Testament language, for me to be righteous. And so I've become self-righteous. I'm depending on myself. And anytime we're depending on ourselves to be well, we're no longer aware of God because we're blocked God out. So mm. it's the simple idea that I can relax into relating to you when I remember that Jesus died to free me from needing your good opinion. Mm. I actually can do my work without needing your approval. Now, having your approval is great, 
I think being a courteous person is great. Sure. But I'm no longer in the tyrannous grip of approval. Perfectionists can do things well. They don't have to be perfect anymore. There's five core needs. So it's perfection, approval, being there for people in need is mm. the third one. So some of us, uh, this is me as well, some of us cannot tell the difference between someone's need and our need to be needed. Mm. Uh, the fourth <laughs> one is having the answer. Mm-hmm. Like that's me as well. If if I know something, I need you to know that I know it. I need you to think I'm smart mm-hmm. for me to be okay. And then the fifth one's uh, control. Control. There are just certain people that if they're not in control, mm-hmm. they get really anxious. So I'll, I'll just list them again in the order we normally teach them. It's control, perfection, having the answer, being there for others, and people's approval. Mm. If you think about these five character traits, these actually happen to be God's character traits. God's in control, so we don't have to be. Mm-hmm. God is perfect. So we are free to make mistakes. God is uh, knows everything there is to know. So we get to be curious. So in each of these five, there's a way that God manifests them in beautiful ways. But there's a way that we twist them into anxiety. Mm. But also in each of these five, there's a human-sized equivalent. Mm. So the idea that I don't have to know and I get to learn, that's incredibly freeing. But mm-hmm. when I need to know the answer, like if I'm in a fundraising environment, and I'm asking someone for money and they ask me a question about my organization and I don't know the answer. Yeah. I go into shame or I get defensive because I, I'm no longer connected to that person. I'm now reacting out of my false needs. Mm. So that's quite a long answer, guys, but that's like a complex reason why no, our chronic perfect. anxiety is such a powerful force in stopping us from connecting to that's God. That's perfect. Yeah, I can see the way that maybe fundraising challenges all those, almost all of those yeah. areas. Like puts those into stress puts it in the pressure cooker all those areas yeah for sure you know we've talked about anxieties coming out of false needs i'm not sure if there's a differentiator between a false need and a like perceived inadequacy the feeling of inadequacy is usually based out of a false need yeah like i have found it helpful to blame god for my lot in life that's (laughs) i'm kind of being tongue-in-cheek but um it's almost like, man, I feel inadequate to be the lead pastor of this church, but God, you got me into this. So, you know, that kind of idea. Like, I, mm. what you are expecting out of me is to learn and grow, do the best I can and seek wisdom, and that's all I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to learn to forgive myself for my leadership mistakes. So, yeah, inadequacy is a, I think every leader battles inadequacy. Mm. But it can be really healthy to tackle things that you're not adequate for. I mean, Christian organizational leadership is the only job description that requires faith to pull it off, right? Mm. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of adequacy, I think for most people, just like you didn't learn about like zoning, building development 101 in seminary, they also don't teach a lot of fundraising as an undergraduate coursework. So for most people, fundraising is well outside of their wheelhouse. So can you just kind of, as our last question here, talk to us about the advantages of actually tackling something that we don't know how to do well and how maybe actually fundraising could be a formative process? Mm. I, I really think, you know, two antidotes to anxiety are curiosity and faith. Mm. I feel like organizational leadership grew my faith more than anything else I've ever done in my life. Like mm. 
the, the faith and trust in God required is off the charts. And instead of focusing on what I don't know and feeling inadequate, which I was, you know, I was not up to the task. Yeah. But what's also true is no one was knocking down our door to do it. You know, that's what sometimes when you're the leader, it's helpful to look behind your shoulder and see there's not a whole line of people mm-hmm. clamoring for this role. Like here you are <laughs> doing the best you can. That helped me to realize that. Mm-hmm. But I do think faith and curiosity can be such a power tool together because, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't understand city politics, zoning, but I can learn. I can be curious which also means I can get smarter people than me around me mm-hmm. rather than feeling like, oh, I need to show that I know. One right. of the, you know, we have interns at our church and one of the tasks of an intern is they have to build some kind of ministry project and they have to stack it with a team of experts that know more about it than they do. So one of my interns built mm. for us a prayer labyrinth on our property. Mm. Cool. He had on his, yeah, he had on his task force, our executive pastor, who's got a master's in project management. He had a landscape architect and he had someone who has had tremendous experience with city approval and our intern didn't know any of that. And he then had to lead them into accomplishing this project. Mm. It's really good practice to lead sharp people. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. authority and expertise are not the same thing, for example. So Mm -hmm. I think that would be my answer there. Mm. Yeah, so I can can imagine a fledgling fundraiser going to a missions pastor and trying to cast vision like that, that feels like a similar comparison. Yeah. Or even just having a core team around them, people that have different yeah. strengths that can, and can come around them in that. Very cool. I would love to walk that prayer labyrinth. Mm-hmm. That sounds, mm-hmm. it's not far, sounds, probably not far from us. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. I could generate far more questions, but we definitely want to respect your time. You know, we just want our listeners to know, hearing about anxiety and hearing the way you've thought through and and even knowing that you have written books and you have different resources available to people, we'd love to point them to some other helpful resources if you had recommendations, both from your own um, offerings or or others you would recommend. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So my own offerings can all be accessed on my website, steveCustwords.com. And uh, I will just give some shout outs. Uh, Todd Bolsinger, who's a um, seminary professor at Fuller, has the same training I do in his book, Canoeing the Mountains. Ooh, It's an amazing book Hmm. uh, for navigating uncomfortable things like this. Mm -hmm. He has a follow-up book just as good called Tempered Resilience. They're both incredible. And then there's a a coaching group that do coaching and consulting called The Leader's Journey. Jim Harrington and Tricia Taylor, dear friends, incredible people. And they provide coaching services in this kind of anxiety management. And it's hard to think of two better humans to do it. Hmm. So, yeah, you can go to my website, stevecustomers.com. But then those would be another couple of resources I'd highly recommend. Yeah. We will link those in the show notes. We definitely will. Do you want to close this out with our final question, Andy? Okay. So here's a hypothetical situation. You suddenly have a windfall. You have $10,000. And the only condition is you have to give it away today. With a split second to decide, uh, who do you, who would you give that money to, and why? And why? Okay, if it's today, I'd give five thousand to five small groups in my church and ask them to pray about a need and give it, Ooh. and then tell us what they did. Nice. And the other five thousand, I would give my staff an hour to go pray, and to come back with a blue sky faith only venture they want to try with five thousand dollars, 
that makes a difference in our community and I give it to that person. The most compelling one in the mm. moment. Mm. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's really great. Well, thank you again so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it. I'm confident that our listeners are going to get some great nuggets yeah. on just identifying their own anxiety, realizing where they have assumptions mm -hmm. and where they've really failed to lean into the joy of entrusting it to God. You know, the one who is in control that is perfect. Um, we have his approval in Christ. He's there in our need and mm -hmm. he has the answers. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Thanks, Pastor. Thank you. It's Not About the Money is presented by Provisio Fundraising Solutions. Provisio equips support-based workers with flexible training, practical resources, and one-on-one -on -one coaching. Find out more at provisiofundraising.com.